before I really start here, I just want to say a few things. I am really glad to see a number of you that I didn't know would be here today. Um, Rodney and Michelle, welcome back. It's probably because I didn't listen well to Michelle on a Wednesday night, but I wasn't sure when you were coming back. I thought you might be flying back today, so I wasn't really expecting you to be here. Um, Pasquale and Sherry, it is great to see you guys and the new baby, and congratulations on becoming a U.S. citizen. It's your first time with us with the baby, first time as a citizen of our country. And I wasn't expecting you to be here today, so I'm glad to see you. And John, up from Florida, I wasn't expecting you. And frankly, Dawn, I love you very much, and I'm glad when you're here, but because of your health, you know, I wasn't sure that you were going to be here. And, um, and Bob and Andrew, I'm teaching today because they're not supposed to be here. So... I say all that in part because I'm glad to see all of you, and also because in part I have some things to say in this message that may come across as hard, and I hope by the end of the message it is turned back up. I hope it won't be that hard, but I got some things to say that I've had to look at me first, and I think we fall short And so all of you that I named, I just want you to know, in all complete honesty, I didn't have you in mind. So if I step on your toes, it's God, not me. (laughs) So um, we're in what we call the Great Commission. Jesus, uh, just his background, his death, burial, and resurrection have happened. Uh, We've been teaching through this. Bob has taught the vast majority of it for over a year as we've gone through Matthew. And um, last week, um, Bob had a slide up on the post-resurrection witnesses. And I just want you to look at these. These are roughly in order as when you piece together the gospel accounts. This is roughly in order. On this side, I'm pretty confident of. We don't really know when the 500 at one time happened. We don't really know when James, the brother of Jesus, um, uh, when that happened. At this point, it's in the order wrapping up from here that Paul gives to us in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, In John 20, seven of the disciples are at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Depending on your version, it'll say Sea of Tiberias. They're in Galilee. Jesus, in both Matthew and Mark accounts, connected with the passage where he tells the disciples that they're going to run away. And then has the discussion with Peter about how Peter's going to deny him three times. In that that passage, he tells them that once he's risen, they're to meet him in Galilee. In the Matthew account from last week, uh, Jesus himself tells the women, "...go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee." And in the Mark account, an angel tells the women, go tell his disciples, meet him in Galilee as he said. Um, Well, so in John, John has them in Galilee. We don't get the Great Commission part that we're getting here in Matthew 28. But seven of them are in Galilee. My hunch is all 11 have gone up there because Jesus said, meet me in Galilee. And seven of them are hanging out somewhere near the sea and decide they want to go fishing. I don't know where the other four are. Maybe the other four aren't there yet. I would think they probably traveled together, but I don't know. But this one and the one we're talking about today probably are the same trip to Galilee. And I have in green the one we're talking about today. Um, Then we have um, the one in Acts 1 that's the last appearance of Jesus where he uh, talks to the 11 disciples. There could have possibly been others present. And they go out to the Mount of Olives. I believe the conversation that's recorded there, they're already at the Mount of Olives probably. But then he ascends to heaven. We call it the ascension. So it's at least 11 different appearances of Jesus to his followers after his resurrection. And uh, Luke actually says in Acts 1, 
that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He spoke to them a bunch of times, appeared a bunch of times. We've got at least 11. There could have been more. Don't know. But that's the background for this. And in obedience to what Jesus says, back in Matthew 28, they have gone to Galilee. And that's where this is taking place. Now... It starts out in verse, after saying they're in Galilee, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I'm going to back up slightly. We're at least here. It could be this is before number seven. I don't know. Again, I said I'm not sure where these two are. All of this has happened. He's, they have seen him multiple times, likely. At least two for all, all of them except Thomas. And... Um, and yet some are doubtful. I'm not going to dwell on the doubtful part, but I just want, I want you to see how they are also like us. If you put yourself in their shoes, there's sometimes things where you see it with your eyes and you know this is happening, but I just I want, think of something that you just couldn't have expected would happen, and it's happening and you're glad about it, you want to pinch yourself. We use that term, i got to pinch myself. You're seeing it, but you're, is it really? This is too good to be true. I think to a lot of extent that could be their case. But he keeps coming and going. What's going on with that? His appearances are not like how they've been being discipled before the crucifixion, where they were with him all the time traveling around. He's disappearing, coming back, disappearing, coming back. Um, I think some of the doubt could be, oh, he's resurrected. This is wonderful. But what does this mean for us? Because it's not the same. And so in that context, he's going to talk about what it means for them. And I, you put yourself in your, their shoes, they might not be ready for what's coming. I don't know. That's a conjecture on my part. But Scripture says some are doubting, and there are times in our lives where we see something in the Word of God. We remember something God has told us in the past. And we know it's true. We know He said it. But we still wrestle. So we experience this. We experience it. Anyway, so some are doubting. The risen Lord is there in front of them. Um, but then we get to verse 18. And this is important before we go into 19 and 20. Jesus comes up. He spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, the first thing I want you to realize is he had authority before his crucifixion. Um, John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. John 1, 3 says that um, all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So he had some pretty impressive authority because he created everything. Well, you say, well, that's when he was God before he gave up his privileges as God and became a human. Okay, but now look at this list. It's actually fun to read the book of Mark. Just the first three chapters, I think, is where I go to. And and make a list of all the things where Jesus demonstrates his authority. And in most of these cases down to here, it actually uses the word authority. He demonstrates his authority in teaching, over demons and casting them out, over numerous types of physical illnesses, uh, authority to forgive sin. Do you remember that passage? The Pharisees are upset that he said, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. He hasn't healed him yet. And they have a big issue over that. And Jesus' words are to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, dash or pause. He turns to the paralytic and tells him to get up. Take up his mat and walk. I, I, I don't know if that's the one, take up your mat and walk. But he tells him to get up, and he heals him. 
So in doing the healing of paralysis, he's showing that he has authority to forgive sin. Uh, over the Sabbath, Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Uh, over his own life, this is the passage where Jesus says, um, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it back up. And I'm paraphrasing, but he says, so the Father has told me. So he's been given authority. At the one over angels is where uh, Peter pulls a sword, chops off the ear of the priest's servant. And uh, uh, Jesus tells him, put the sword away. And he says, I have authority to call down 12 legions of angels that are at my disposal. Does anybody know how many are in a legion, Roman legion, back then? My footnote says 6,000. 6,000 times 12 is 72,000 angels. So on the night that Jesus is being betrayed, right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he has authority to call down 72,000 angels. How many angels did it take to break the Roman seal, roll the stone away, and petrify the guards? One. So he has 72,000. I'm betting you there weren't even a thousand in the group of guards and all that came to arrest him. It was probably, I'm making it up. Scripture doesn't have it. doesn't give us the number. But how many do you need to send to arrest one man? It was probably 50 to 100, maybe. 72,000 angels. So anyway, my point, I'm, I'm going too long on this. But he had authority before his crucifixion. So that makes me wonder, why does Jesus say this now? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, two reasons come to mind. Number one, his authority is now complete. All means all. So I want to show you a couple of verses. In the notes, there's some other verses on this subject. But Romans 14 and verse 9 and 11 says, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, says Yahweh, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, a similar thought of having this authority where every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess. But notice also there's an authority as Lord of the dead and the living. Now, I think he had that authority before, but that's in this verse. Having risen from the dead, he has sort of a final type of authority demonstrated by having power over death itself. But every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. So we go to Philippians 2, 8, and 11, 8 through 11. Being found in appearance as a man, so this is after some of those wonderful verses about Jesus giving up his privileges as God. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also, now this is, I believe, God the Father because of this at the end. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Father is giving this authority, this exaltation to Christ after he has risen from the dead. So one reason Jesus says this, even though I have trouble fully understanding it, is there was a final stamp of authority that stamps him as the ruler kind of king authority where every knee will bow and every tongue confess, whether they want to or not, that he is Lord. I'm thinking that wasn't an authority he yet had from the Father before the crucifixion and the resurrection. So uh, another one, Colossians 2, 9 and 10 he is the head over all rule and authority. Now, he had created all the various principalities and authorities. That's in Colossians also. But now he's the head over all rule and authority because that's where the Father has placed him. So, number one, all means all. His authority is now complete. But the second thing 
that I think is critical to this passage is his authority as the basis and foundation for what he's about to tell them to do. Um, Now, you know this passage is about going and making disciples into all the nations. I have heard one particular missionary, I think I've actually heard it from several, but one particular missionary in a question and answer session, he was asked, he worked in closed countries where you're not allowed to openly go and share about Christ. And he was asked, how do you as a Christian function in some of the ways you do that when you know you're breaking the law of the country? And this, verse 18, is what he pointed to. My authority, my reason for doing this, my justification stems from Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth has told us to go and make disciples. And that's what he pointed to. And, and I, I'm, I'm hitting on this kind of hard because if you want to be involved in influencing others for Christ, I think you need to realize that the authority comes from Christ. Most of us are not going to be doing things that break the laws of a country as part of trying to share Christ with people. But ultimately, the authority to make disciples in the name of Jesus Christ comes from Jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth. Bob and I talked briefly about this on Wednesday, and he pointed out something I hadn't thought about. This had already been demonstrated since the crucifixion because when Jesus rose from the dead, did did the stone need to be moved away so Jesus could get out? No, there's no record of him walking out. The stone needed to be moved away. Why? So people could see in that he was no longer there. So the stone has a Roman seal on it. Under Roman authority, you can't move the stone. You can't break the the seal and move the stone. But God, the Father, sends an angel. For all I know, the risen Jesus might have sent the angel. Scripture doesn't tell us. But God sends an angel who's not worried about the Roman authority because he's been sent on the authority of the God who created heaven and earth. Breaks that seal and rolls it away. Anyway, that's the basis and foundation for what we call the Great Commission. All right. So, Great Commission consists in verses 19 and 20 of one command, one imperative, three sort of supporting clauses. I have to tell you, grammar in English is a weakness for me. So, grammar in any other language is going to get shaky. But there's one command, an active verb, and that's what we're to major on, and it's the term make disciples. Other three are participles. Oh, and so so we got a command. We've got three supporting participles, phrases that sort of tell us how you know how we're going to do the command, and then we have a promise at the end. So that's kind of the outline of these four verses. So the participles are are go or going. Um, It's great that Bob's here. If I say anything wrong, jump in. But it. In the Greek, this participle for go is different for baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching are sort of a present tense, you're going to do this while you're making disciples. The go is actually um, a, a tense that sort of means continuing, but started already. It doesn't always mean started already. I got wrapped around the axle trying to figure that out. Yes. So, so that has to happen before the main cycle. Yeah, so you can't baptize and teach before you're doing that. But you do need to be doing this in order for that to happen. And so go is not really... Go could be the right term. I think of it more as going and keep going. Um, it implies that you are going. 
you can't just sit and make disciples. Um, I have seen some renderings of it as having gone, which I don't really like because that sort of makes it sound like you went and then you stopped and it's not continuing. But I kind of like as you go and keep going for this. But um, anyway, I thought I wanted to say something more there. Oh, so I'm not going to dwell much on these participles because I want to talk mostly about make disciples, okay? But the baptizing, uh, I may not come back to this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, it's not just baptizing them, stop, period. We're making disciples of Christ. So it's baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Jews baptized proselytes that became converts. It's not just a generic, it's a specific baptizing in the name of the one that you're now believing in. The one you're now submitting to and following. Okay? Now, another neat thing that I actually heard Gerald say, quoting Bob, is that notice that it's singular, name. That's something great to go puzzle on. Baptizing them in the name. I assume it's singular in Greek. Yeah, it's singular in Greek. It's singular in English. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you're baptizing in a name that encompasses all three of them. What name might that be? Any thoughts? I, I heard somebody faintly. Yahweh. Yahweh would be the most likely interpretation of that. Uh, so that was revving up Gerald in terms of uh, talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. But we're baptizing them in the name of the one you're now professing in as Lord and Savior. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So that's an ongoing process, and I'm going to get more into that a little bit later. But all the things, Jesus in another part of Scripture talked about how it's enough for a disciple to become like the discipler, like the teacher. In Romans 8, God tells us through Paul that God's goal, he's predestining us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That Christ would be the first fruits of many. So to quote C.S. Lewis, he wants to make a whole lot of Jesus Christ. Don't take that wrong. But he wants to make us, remake us in the image of Christ character-wise and where the Spirit of Christ is working through us. And so this makes complete sense. We're to teach people to do, observe, my, my translation teach them to observe all. That means obey, do, put into practice the things that these disciples, these 11 that are in front of Jesus, have heard from him. Okay, so... Great Commission, make disciples. So it begs a question. I'm going to go into the two terms here. But um, you can't make disciples, I don't think, not effectively, if you're not a disciple. So it starts with that. Are you a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Now, I don't like it when you define a term with a term. So I just want to explain this stuff here is defining this Greek word in terms of English. It's not defining disciple with the word disciple. Disciple is just the English word that it gets used in all our translations. But the Greek word for disciple is mathetes. I'm close. I don't know if I got that right. But it's a noun, and it means a learner, a pupil, a disciple, one who follows someone's teaching, a follower. So in most translations, almost every time this word appears, you'll see the word disciple. That's the common thing that we mean. But it's, it's a follower. You're following after the one who's your teacher. Make disciples in 28 verse 19 is the verb form, matateo. And you can see the Greek numbering system. They're really close, very much related, 3101, 3100. This is the verb form. And again, grammar's not my specialty. But it can be transitive or intransitive. Transitive means it's got a direct object. And when it's got a direct object, it means to make a disciple, to teach or instruct with a view towards making a disciple. 
When it's intransitive, it means to have become a disciple, to follow that person's precepts and instructions. And so if you look back in chapter 27, we have an example of the other one. And talking about Joseph of Arimathea in verse 57, Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. That's the same Greek word, but it's in the intransitive. When it's transitive, I don't fully understand this, so I see Bob looking puzzled, but it's active and active and passive. Okay, so it's here it's active in verse 19, and it means make disciples. Okay? So Disciple, make disciples. I want to dwell some on disciple. And I've been, I've been chewing on this for several days because, frankly, making disciples is something God put on my heart as a passion in my early 20s. And it is really, in terms of serving the Lord, it is what I most want to do and most like to talk about. But I have to tell you, I am not good at it. I am not good at it. And I think most of us either are not good at it or we haven't even caught a vision for doing this. And so here's where the next few slides may be a little convicting. But, you know, if disciples equivalent to a follower, I want you to think for a moment, what do you follow? Now, in our current... um, culture, follow often means subscribing to something in the multimedia world. Like you can follow a famous person on Twitter. What does it mean if you follow someone on Twitter? You know what they say. You know what they say. You're not monitoring. You're receiving all their tweets. And you've signed up for it because you care about what they say. So you're following everything the president says. Or you're following everything some famous... uh, athlete says, or you're following everything some famous musician says. You may be following a bunch of people. You may be spending a lot of time reading tweets. <laughs> um, but there's other things people follow. Sports teams. Now, I'm not saying this to pick on anybody. If you feel convicted, look to God. But I grew up crazy about football nuts about it and all the way long after God laid on my heart making disciples I was passionate about college and pro football teams and I could reel off stats and history and all kinds of stuff and you don't get not so knowledgeable about it if you haven't been following it immersing yourself in it, watching the games, reading the articles, following your team year after year after year. And it just leads me to a moment to pause and reflect. Am I spending more time following a football team than I am trying to follow Christ? Am I spending more time following some famous person Who's alive today on earth, physically, in the media, then I am following Christ. I want each of you to think about that seriously. Am I more zealous for other things than I am for Christ? If that's true, and frankly, I think it's often true of most of us, who have been redeemed by the Lord. And I don't think it should be that way. Not where that's the thing you're most excited about. And I'm dwelling on this because I don't think we can get to making disciples if we're not a disciple. And if I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus. So as much as you may follow someone's tweets, you ought to be following what Jesus has said. Okay, am I a disciple of Christ? This is a question that begs, and another one, am I following Christ? That's what I've been talking about. So let's move on. From the words of Jesus, so I want to give you five characteristics of a disciple of Christ, and what I'm doing here is I'm going through the book of John, 
and I'm picking out key things where in most cases, Jesus says, he either says, you need this to be my disciple, or it's really clear in the context that that's what it means. So um, the first one comes in John 8, and I'm just taking them in the order I get to them in John. So, and I, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. Um, a week or two ago, um, Bob spent a little bit of time on the verse about um, uh, dying to self. Uh, and then Luke's version, I think we were in Matthew, but Luke's version in Luke 9.23, if anyone was, wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I don't even have that on here. I'm just going by what, John, what I'm getting out of John. Okay, so I'm not claiming this is exhaustive, but these are key things that are characteristics of a disciple. And as I go through them, I want you to be thinking, is this true of me? Uh, unless you're just, you don't have to tell me or us, but if you're honest with yourself, I'm not trying to follow Christ. I'm not a disciple of his. If that's true of you, it's good to admit that. Because now you're being honest, and God can work with you in your honesty. But if you are claiming to be a follower of Christ, you think you are, which is probably most of our cases in this room. These things should be true of us. They may be not perfect, okay? But they should be things that God's growing in us, all right? So the first one is abides in Jesus' word. John 8, 31 and 32 Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. So if we went back a few verses, a lot of Jews have come to believe in him. And this is actually the second cycle. There's been a big one in John 6 where he fed the 5,000. A whole bunch of them are following him because they want to be fed. And he gives them a hard teaching and almost all of them leave. And he turns to the, 11 disciples, the 12 disciples at that time. Do you, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's a key thing there. I really think that because Peter knew the Lord and had seen him do miracles and had been under his teaching, that when he gets to a really hard thing that Peter probably didn't understand any more than the rest of the people that left, Peter's going to hang in there because he knows the one teaching. For many of those other people that left, they hadn't gotten to know Jesus. They had heard a message in a big crowd and they got fed. Okay? But that's important. The more you know someone, the more you give, them, you give them some slack if they say something that maybe you think's out of line. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about toward the Lord. I'm talking about towards one another, you know, because it, you love them. You've gotten to know them or something, and you give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, with our relationship with Christ, the more we get to know Christ, the more he's got a hold of us. And we'll hang in there even if we don't understand something. I think John 6 is a great example of that. When we get to John 8, the crowds that went away, they have mushroomed back. And so a lot of them are believing in him. And it even says here, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, I know you've heard messages before about abiding, so I'm not going to dwell on this. But abide means to stay, to remain. And so the idea of staying in his word, remaining in his word, means you're taking to heart what he teaches. You're not just running by that and going back off into your life and forgetting it. It's going with you and staying with you as you live life between church on Sunday morning until church the next Sunday morning. Just to pick one example. Okay? Um. And by the way, this believed, I don't think, is a saving faith. Because if you read the rest of John 8, which I'll leave to you to do, it gets really um, adversarial. To the point where the crowd, the Jews who have believed in him, actually insinuate that he was born out of wedlock. Was he born out of wedlock? No, but from their perspective, if you don't know about the virgin birth, you know, so they insinuate that, and, um, and he actually tells them at one point that their father is the devil. It's an amazing passage to read through, particularly when you hang on to this part. These are the ones who have believed in him. 
Well, because they fall away, we know that's not a saving belief. It's a head belief, okay? But we got a key principle here from Jesus about his disciples. They're going to abide in his word. And by the way, the word, word, singular, one thing I really like that's tangentially related to this. I'm reading from, you don't need to turn to this, but Mark 2, verse 2, in the passage about having the authority to forgive sins and healing the paralytic, Mark 2, verse 2 says, Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. I love that phrase. It's singular. Speaking the word to them. But we know he said lots of words. I could actually point to several other cases of this kind of terminology in the gospel. He's saying lots of words. But all those words combined is the word that he's speaking to them. So I'm labeling this abide in Jesus' word because that's what he said. If, you're my, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. I do think you're on great ground to generalize that to all of Scripture, inspired by God, God's word. But specifically, he says, my word, singular, but it means all of what he's teaching. Okay? So, are you staying in Jesus' word? Does it matter to you? Do you fall asleep when people are telling you about Jesus' word? Do you think about football, soccer, daydreaming about some sport while somebody's talking about Jesus' word? These are good questions because we've all done that. I've daydreamed while a preacher's preaching. Not since I came to this church. (laughs) But I've done it, particularly when I was so into football years ago. Okay? Thinking about work. It's a Sunday. You probably go to work tomorrow. You might have work things on your mind. I'm, I just want, for the sake of all of us, that we... God wants us, Jesus wants us to follow Him. It's what's best for you. So this is significant. Do I care about what Jesus has said? And how much do I care? Is it important enough that selected things he said that really resonate or convict me? I'm going to memorize them. Meditate on them. Think about them. Okay. Love's like Jesus. This is one you know, John 13. Uh, I got it here. John 13, 34 through 35. Now, it's interesting. From this point on, the next four are after Judas Iscariot has left. He left in earlier in John 13. So this is the rest of these are just to the 11 disciples. And it's interesting, they're on the last night, the night that Jesus is going to be arrested. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's not just love them the way you love yourself. This is love them the way Jesus has loved you. That means sacrificially, because he died on the cross for us, right? Um, And it's by this that everyone will know that you are my disciples. So on one level of the five things I'm going to put up here, this is the one that we're likely to, to most say we do this. Because if you've... If you've grown up in a church or been been in a church for a while since a salvation experience, Christ has been changing you. Love, compassion for people is something that kind of happens. But if I flip the coin, the other part of it is that we rarely love like Christ. We love when it's convenient. We love when it's not too hard. Um, We love when I like that person. I'm not so good at it when I don't like that person. We love them when they at least aren't being mean to me. Jesus said, love your enemies. Oh, that's hard. Love your enemies. But this is actually the one that other people looking at us can tell that we are followers of Christ when they see the love of Christ that we have for each other. So it's important. Keeps Jesus' word, I put in parentheses, obeys Jesus. This is John 14, 21 to 23. He who has my commandments and keeps them. Keeps means you put them into practice. You're obeying them. 
It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Manifest means to disclose, to make known. Now this dot, dot, dot in between here is verse 22, where one of the disciples says to Jesus, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the whole world? And then Jesus resumes, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What you have here is a portrait of a spiraling, increasing, deeper and deeper intimacy with Jesus and with God the Father. Because for you to keep his commandments, God has already made some truth known to you. It's Jesus speaking. So Jesus has made some truth known to you. And then when you choose to keep it, to practice it, to make it something you regularly do, then as you're showing love for him, he loves you and discloses himself further to you. And it's, I think, a repeating cycle, a growing in intimacy with Jesus and the Father, and I would include the Holy Spirit. Because when I... and, and This is one where I think, I'm going to come back to this probably later. This is one where a number of us fail. There's something that we just want to keep doing, and we know God doesn't like it. But we want to keep doing it. It's my thing. I'm going to keep it. And because we're not keeping his commandment or keeping the thing he's laid on your heart in your relationship with Jesus that you ought to do or not do, it sort of stops. That's increasing intimacy. And, and frankly, no matter how mature you are in Christ, this is something you have to guard against because new believers can be susceptible to it. Just come to faith, give up a few things, but there's this one thing I've been doing, I'm going to keep doing it. I can't give that up. God works on you to get you to where you give that up. But mature believers can have things, too, where you hold on to something. It could be something you, keep, you want to keep doing. It could be something you don't want to do, and Jesus is laying on your heart to do it. And intimacy is going to stop at that point. You have to get to the point where you submit and obey for it to resume growing. All right, uh, abides in Jesus, John 15, 1 through 5. I've only got two of the verses here. I'm going to read the whole passage out of my Bible. Um, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Now, the word prune can mean lift up, can mean clean, um, actually, not, I'm sorry, prune can mean clean. In the next verse, verse 3, he says, you are already clean. It's the same word, I think, that's being used there. You are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. When he said, um, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That takes away can mean lift up. And so it can be a shearing off. It can be a lifting up. And in terms of People that raise vineyards and other types of plants and know something about pruning that I don't know a whole lot about, uh, it can sometimes be lifting up a branch and helping it so that it can eventually uh, produce. But the key thing is in verse 3, he says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So they are pruned. They are cleaned. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart, for without me, you can do nothing. The same abiding applies here as in abiding in Jesus' word, except that now it's abiding in Jesus himself. He is our life. He is our power. He is our strength. And if we're abiding in him, his life flows through us. And it's the abundance of that life that then produces fruit. Okay, you, you know this, if you know, about, you know anything about plants, if you've got a, a shrub or tree, let's say it's a tree that's going to be a fruit tree, and it just gets a little bit of water, lots of harsh sunshine, it may just kind of sit there and survive. 
it's you give it a lot, you give it a good bit more water, and it starts to grow, and it might not produce fruit yet, but it's growing. And if it gets lots of water and lots of all the nutrients it needs, and it's just got an abundance of life, then it grows and out comes fruit. Fruit comes from an abundance of life, and your abundance of life comes from Christ. And so as we abide in Him, we are truly His disciples, and then that leads to the fifth thing, which is bear fruit. In John 15, verse 8, he says, this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit is a proof of being a disciple. Now, I don't want you unnecessarily to go off on a guilt trip about bearing fruit, so I'm going to help you. It, it, there's three t- I see three types of fruit in the New Testament. It could be more. One is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you are a disciple of Christ, a follower, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any motivation to follow Christ. And the Spirit's going to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the whole list. It's going to produce that fruit in you. And by the way, I think one of the reasons that fruit is produced in you is when life in a fallen world squeezes you. Think of a sponge soaked in water sitting on the sink and you smack it. What comes out? Water, make a big mess. If you're a kid, don't do this without mom's permission because mom's going to have you clean it up, okay? But a sponge soaked in water when it's smacked, squeezed, out comes what it's filled with. The Holy Spirit fills us with the fruit of the Spirit, and when life squeezes us, it's fruit juice that's supposed to come shooting out and splattering the people around us, and that attracts people to Christ. Someone sick. Cancer, something. And if the joy of the Lord is present in their life and peace in a way that some non-believer sees them, I I don't know how you can be so joyful like that. I I would be bitter if I was in your situation. That's evidence that fruit juice came out and splattered them. You don't want to be sick and ill, have life squeezing you like that, but... God's using it if that fruit juice comes out. And you can go on and on. Love. You know, when do people notice love? It's usually when something's happened and you sacrifice for the good of someone else. And someone might see that. I'm not saying they're always going to see that. A lot of times you are living for the Lord to glorify Him and nobody else may notice it. But sometimes people see that fruit juice come out and splatter them. Kindness. Someone's mean to you. Someone treats you rottenly and you just don't have a bad word. You say something kind. You may even look for an opportunity to do them a good deed. In the movie War Room, if you've seen it, near the end, it's not the end, but right before the end scenes, um, the main guy character who had been a jerk of a husband and was changed by Christ, he encounters one of the bosses at work who didn't like him, wanted to arrest him, had him thrown in jail. And the guy's got a flat tire and he pulls up and gets out no words are exchanged. He changes the tire. The man is just, you can tell by his face, he can't believe what's happening. And then they shake hands. When, when you have an opportunity and that fruit juice comes out, that's what gets people's attention. And it may lead to some going, well, you know, I kind of need to know what he's got that I don't have. How can you be like that? They want to know. But if we're grieving the Holy Spirit, that's reducing that fruit, quenching the Holy Spirit. So anyway, that's one type of fruit. Another type of fruit is the fruit of good works. Kind of overlaps with the kindness example that I just gave. But Jesus, in talking about us being salt and light in Matthew 5, in the um, beginning parts of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says when he talks about us being light, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And, and then the third type of fruit is the fruit of lives change where people come to know Christ. And that's why I give you the three different types because sometimes we read this and you think, well, I've not led anybody to Christ. Or if I have led someone to Christ, it's been a long time. I, I, I don't have this proof. That there's three different types of fruit. And any of those are demonstration that the Holy Spirit's in you. Now, what's great, as you thrive, it ties back into number one, abiding in Jesus. All those types of fruit are potentially things that'll be coming out of the believer, out of your life. Okay, moving on. Um, 
So, making disciples. How do I make disciples? This is a big topic. Um, if you come back for care group tonight, we may well talk some more about this. What I want to do is show you in the last 10 minutes that we've got a diagram. Um, I didn't make up this diagram. I was shown it by a navigator who was discipling me back in my 20s. I don't know if the navigators came up with this. I don't know where it came from, but I think it's really good. The green box, by the way, there's a copy of this on the back of one of the note handouts that are on the foyer, if you want it. Um, The green boxes represent categories that people are in. Now, it's not black and white. I'll talk a little bit about that in the next 10 minutes. But these are basic categories that people fall in. The arrows represent processes that help move people from one place to another. So in terms of a baseball diamond, home plate is the loss. Don't have a relationship with Christ. It's the process of witnessing that moves them to be converts. It's the process of discipling, which means teaching and training, that moves someone to disciples. Equipping is what moves someone to a disciple maker. And then sending is where the one wanting to make disciples goes to the lost. Because actually God in his graciousness will bring lost people across your path. He brings them to us sometimes. But most of the lost people in the world don't go looking for the Christian. We've got to go to them. Um, but I want, to, want you to notice another couple of things. A convert is someone who was lost and has been changed. A disciple was lost and became a convert, still is a convert, but he is now following Christ. This is following Christ. If you're following Christ, then you're a disciple. It's sad to say, but a lot of people in good churches in America are satisfied to be here and just stop. That's part of why I gave you those five characteristics and why I've been talking about this. This is not the end goal for you. God wants to conform you to the image of Christ. How are you going to get there if you're not following Christ? Follow is an active thing. Even though he's not here physically the way he was in Matthew and said, come follow me, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They had to choose. Stay with the boat. Am I going to follow him? Okay? It's not like that physically, but there's still active things to do as a follower. How am I going to abide in his word if I'm not reading his word? How am I going to abide in Christ if I don't spend some time with him? And by that, I mean reading his word, praying, uh, things like that. Uh, So a disciple maker is someone who was lost, became a convert. He's still a convert, became a disciple following Christ, but he's grown to where he's got a heart and desire to impact the others and help them. Okay, so um, got a few minutes. So a few verses. This is the one that we're... That's our passage for this message today. So I want to show you a couple of others because this is in Galilee and Jesus says, make disciples. Okay, these two, Acts 1.8, this is at the end, at the ascension, the last appearance to all the disciples. And he majors on witnesses. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. A witness is someone who tells what he's seen and heard. So we call a material witness. You can also have an expert witness who tells what he knows. Okay? Tell what you've seen and heard. If you haven't seen and heard anything, you don't have anything to tell. Right? Can't be a witness if you haven't been around Christ. Now, we can't be around Christ like the 11 were, physically. But... If your life's been changed and you're devouring this and you're striving to live for him and the spirit's in you, you're seeing and hearing stuff. How he's cha- You're seeing and hearing this inspired truth from the word of God. You're seeing how he's changing your life. You're seeing how he's working in you and around you. You can be a witness to all those things. Witnessing does not only mean sharing your salvation testimony, although that's included. Okay. Witnessing is sharing what you've seen and heard, what you know about the risen Lord. Um, Mark 16, 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all 
creation. Think of preach as proclaim. Go proclaim it. Tell them. Well, witnesses are the ones that go tell them. Okay? Uh, over here, Luke 24, 46 and 48, he says, Thus it is written, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins. We basically have the gospel there. Repentance uh, and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So here we have witnesses, preach slash proclaim, witnesses, preach slash proclaim. This is how, how, you, how you get people to go from lost to convert. They have to hear the word of God proclaimed, and then as faith happens in their heart, they profess Jesus as Lord. Believing in their hearts that Christ raised from the dead. Okay. Um, discipling means growing in Christ. Do I have that? I don't have Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Let me read it to you real quick. Um, this was one we studied in our Wednesday night study over the summer. And there's many verses on this. I don't remember what I put on the notes handout, whether I gave you a bunch or not. But this is one of them where... Paul, talking to the Colossian church, says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The moment someone becomes a convert, a new believer, they're not, they, they have been... They have been... Um, they have received Christ Jesus the Lord, but there's some walking in Him and being built up in Him and established in your faith that needs to take place. And that's talking about growing. Growing is what characterizes being a disciple. And again, this is the process, the arrow. But the moment you become a convert, if you start following Jesus, you're a disciple too. And you start growing. Okay? Are you growing? If you don't think you're growing, if you look back over however long since you profess faith in Christ and you haven't changed much, you've got reason to spend some time before the Lord and ask what's going on. Because growth characterizes the disciple. Um, there's an equation for growth. This comes from Howard Hendricks, Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a professor there for many years. And he mentored a um, number of people you know of, like um, Chuck Swindoll, uh, Tony Evans, who is the father of Priscilla Shire, who is in a couple of good movies, uh, Out, uh, Overcomer is the recent one she's in. Um, David Jeremiah. Uh, so he's had influence on some people you hear on Christian radio. I have been blessed so many times in, by God through messages from Chuck Swindoll and Tony Evans. I really have a bunch and I haven't heard, how, I've heard Howard Hendricks on tape once or twice, but, um, you know, this, this shows how you can impact one person who then impacts a whole bunch beyond your own sphere. Anyway, this equation for growth comes from him, and I really love it. Growth is God's word plus obedience plus time. Now, look, at, at a couple, two of the five characteristics of a disciple are here. Abiding in the word, keeping his word, which is obedience. And then time. And as you obey, as you're learning his word, as you're hanging in there, because what do we often do? We give up. Something hard happens and we say, I don't know that I can keep doing this. I've had enough. I just want to stay where I am. Time and continuing to persevere in the word of God and in obeying, that all leads to growth. Okay. Um, notice in John 15, well, 1 Corinthians 3, God causes the growth. John 15, where I read earlier, my father is the vine dresser. The father is the one trying to grow us all. All right, I'm about out of time. Let me just hit a couple of highlights. Converts can impact the lost. Andrew, first day that he's met the Messiah, comes home, well, not home, but wherever they were staying, finds Peter, his brother, and says, come see, we found the Messiah. He hasn't had any time to be discipled other than that afternoon with Jesus, which is probably some discipline. He's probably a convert slash disciple already. But he has an impact on the lost. Um, disciples can impact converts and lost. Disciples actually can be encouragers of the disciple maker. There's nothing that warms the heart 
of a godly, mature man who's, or woman who's given him or herself to impacting others for Christ than seeing a disciple who's just eating up the Word of God and coming with all kinds of questions because they're wanting to grow. They may be trying to help converts, uh, lost people or, or young converts already, and they got questions. He brought up this. What do I say? She's got this issue. What do I help her with? How do I help her? Um, disciple makers impact all three categories. Disciple maker is looking for who can I help? Whether it's lost to be converts, converts to grow in Christ, disciples to be equipped and be disciple makers. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Disciple making is about letting others in on your walk with Christ, passing on what you've received freely, helping them to do the same. Okay, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to skip... Good verses, they're on your thing. I'm going to skip them. Yeah, I got too much. So, I was going to give you two quotes from St. John in Exile. I'm going to give you one. I got to give you two. So, so, these are just so good. This is where I'm ending, okay? I'm ending with this. Um, St. John in Exile is a movie where Dean Jones is doing a play as the character of John the Disciple on the island of Patmos. Wonderful. If you've never seen it, it's wonderful. You should watch it. But at one point, he's talking about what it was like to know Jesus. And he says, when, when he spoke with someone, when he talked with you, beloved, Jesus knew your needs, your heartaches, your dearest dreams. And then he pauses. And after the pause, he says, and from that day forward, you were never the same. On this disciple business, are you still the same? Have you changed? I think that's the crying problem with so many churchgoers. You haven't changed. Spend some time with the Lord and pour your heart out to Him if there hasn't been change in your life for years and years. Because if, if you've met Christ and you're following Him, there's going to be change. Okay, second quote. Um, He's talking about the feeding of the 5,000. This is, again, Dean Jones playing the character of John. When we get through feeding 5,000 hungry men and their families with what that little boy had in his basket, five small barley loaves, a few salt fish, I began to understand little could be much in Jesus' hands. And he could take that little that I was and make me into something useful for his great purposes. And he pauses again and he says, I decided right then that if Jesus were willing to attempt the impossible, the least I could do was cooperate. Are you cooperating with the Lord? You may think you're little. This is a big excuse we fall into up here. I just can't do that. It's, I'm not cut out for that. I, I can't do this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Matthew 28, and I'm going to end here, he says, uh, teaching them all that I have commanded you. So just real quick, what do you know of Jesus' commands in the Gospels? What are the big highlights? What did he say? Commands. Start with what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. What's the second one unto it? Love your neighbors, you love yourself. Okay. What's another command you can think of? What? Hmm? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, you've got to change the way you think. Go the other way. In the five characteristics, there was one. Uh, oh, well, so, yeah, abide in me or you won't have any strength. The one I was actually thinking was is a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And here in Matthew, so you think you're a disciple. He says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What's the last command? Make disciples. It's the last command. This is what, I don't want you to misunderstand it. This is what it's all about. It's all about knowing the Lord, your own relationship with Him, and then being involved in what He cares about which is helping others have a relationship with him. That's making disciples. So if this is not something that thrills you, take the handout home. One of them, it says, 
being a witness on one side and on the other side it has this diagram and there are verses in there. You can have some great quiet times this week, topical quiet times, but just looking at those verses and cry out to the Lord. How come I don't want this? Help me to want it. Because little can be much in Jesus' hands. All right, I'm going to skip my questions. We're going to go ahead and pray to close. Um, Father, thank you for preserving your word that we could read it. Lord, I'm not good at what I've been talking about. Help me, Lord, to love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength and in the little strength that I have to do what I can and let you work through me. Help us, Father, to follow you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to follow you, to love you with all of our hearts and to give ourselves to the things that matter to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.